Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. With Earth Day closing in on us rapidly, and it's one of my favorite holidays because it means a lot to me, we'll be visiting today with two different Earth Connection activists and teachers. Most of us are woefully undereducated about the plants we share this world with and which are fundamental to our health and survival. In the second half of the hour, we'll be visiting with Samuel Thayer, one of America's preeminent experts and practitioners of foraging in nature, and author of a new book, Incredible Wild Edibles. But right now, we're going to get Erin Lefebvre in the studio to talk about her new release, The Learning Herbalism Workbook, and Erin's work at FullCircleHerbals.com. Erin Lefebvre joins us in person today. Erin, it's delightful to have you here again today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me. Putting out the workbook, the Learning Herbalism Workbook, must have been a major usage of your time. How long did it take you to put together the workbook? Since you were self-publishing it, I imagine that means that you had all of the tasks. Nobody else is really helping out. Gosh, I think it was about, I'd say a year and a half, because I first started it out as a free resource that I had on my website that I give away to people, just useful worksheets people can use along the way and templates as they were doing learning herbalism. And then people started asking me, can I have this in print format? And I thought, okay, that shouldn't be too hard. It's all done. I just got to get it into a format and send it off to the printers. Well, then I learned that Ingram Sparks, where I have it printed, they had a specific set of margins and everything that had to be laid out. And so I did hire somebody to lay it out for me. So I, I think I put it together, like I said, in about a year and a half. You started with a bachelor's in geography, and then you went on to a master's in environmental science. Your master's in herbalism, which I think you got from Gigi, Talk about how those three pieces dovetail together, or don't. I mean, they could be separate paths that you're walking in your life. The bachelors and the masters were always geared towards plants, always, even though people say, well, geography doesn't seem like plants. Well, there's phytogeography and other things like that. And then my master's degree, I was really focusing on ethnobotany. I wasn't really sure how to go about studying herbalism or, you know, getting a certificate or a bachelor or master's degree in it. So I just was going the scientific route, the traditional route through universities. And then I eventually realized I had a lot of plant knowledge. I know how things grow. I know how they work. I know how to garden. And so it was just a really smooth transition for me to continue to formalize my herbalism studies with Gigi Staffney. For me, it dovetailed really great together. And then my work with UW Extension when I was the horticulture educator, I had to really learn how to diagnose people's plant problems and figure out what information I needed to focus on when they told me the plant was sick or wasn't looking good and what details to focus on. And that was the same thing with people and with herbalism is trying to when they had an ailment they needed assistance with, then I could weed out, again, what information to focus on for their health goals and then match that up with herbs or plants that would work for their lifestyle. Let's talk about how you got into herbalism. As you say in the book, you started being interested, involved in it in your teens. Who was your first mentor? Was it just books or how did you pick up this interest? 
I'm not exactly sure how I picked up the interest. I always say it was just a part of me. So, you know, it was a feeling I had within and this connection I had with plants. And I didn't really know what to do with it. But then when I started searching at the local library, I did come across a couple books that I had. And then it just kind of grew from there. Gigi Staffney was probably my first set of face-to-face classes or workshops I took. And then the books that I really kind of gravitated towards was Rosemary Gladstar was the one I really kept going after time and time again. One of the people I've had the privilege of interviewing over the years is Taroni Lodog. Not a minor <laughs> influence in that field. And she talked about how at the house they got to learn it. She got to learn it from one of her grandmothers in particular. So did you really have to be a self-learner most of the time? I'm wondering then if this herbalism study guide is meant for the people who are doing self-learning. Absolutely. I was searching out on my own, doing self-teaching. And then when I got into the herbalism program with Gigi and really hit it hard, I still was doing you know some self-study because it was some of its correspondence, some of its face-to-face And it's just a lot of information out there. I mean, you know, 900,000 different plants are out there. Which ones do you focus on? And that whole journey from self-study to the Master Herbalism program, I definitely thought, hey, I've created a few tools for myself. I'm just going to share these with people. And it grew from there into this, this workbook. But yeah, I wanted, I didn't want people to struggle like I did, trying to find sources and keep it organized. Should I write that down? Shouldn't I write that down? Which recipe should I do? So this workbook was definitely geared for people like me who are self-teaching and trying to move along at their own pace. You clearly have a strong science background. So Aaron Lefebvre at one point is doing very certifiable science. I think herbalism has less prestige, less acceptance in our society Let people know why herbalism is valuable, why you as a scientific person also find value in this. I think herbalism is important because there is definite value in plants and herbs for our health. There are plant constituents and chemicals that we are not getting in our regular diet that certain herbs have, antimicrobials, antifungals, all that kind of stuff as well as the medical community is coming up against superbugs and things that are having more resistance to pharmaceuticals that we have out there, and they need answers and other ideas and options, and they're looking into a lot of the herbs out there that have been historically known for hundreds of years to help with things, and they're actually doing scientific studies on that. So this old knowledge that's been passed on for years and years, decades and decades, it has a lot of value to it, And science sometimes can quantify it, and sometimes it can't quantify it. And that's why herbalism is such a tricky thing, is because people say, well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And we have to remember that we can't be reductionist with herbs either. We can't just bring it down to one chemical that's going to work. There's a whole synergy within the plant that's working that scientists can't even figure out at this point. I mean, there's so many things in plants they don't even have names for. They just constantly are making up names for plant chemicals and constituents. And plants have a healing quality about them that's really not always tangible. And the plant communities in themselves are healing just to be amongst them. And some scientific research is kind of 
catching up to that synergy out in nature, that plants don't have to be consumable, that it doesn't have to be something we put in our mouths. There's therapeutic qualities of just, the, of course, the aromatherapy, but being out with them in nature in their native communities, that is part of herbalism too. It's not just an ingestible quality. So there's a perspective to herbalism as well that could help the scientific community. Science looks at things quite one-sided. And when we look at ethnobotany and the use of herbs for therapeutic qualities, there's just a different aspect of looking at plants that scientists could benefit from. And I'm speaking more on the kind of spiritual and what I call the plant priestess perspective. And that is, like I said, plants are valuable not just for ingesting qualities, but as a whole medicine for nature. There are things that plants have... You know, I'm looking at some white pines right now out this window, and you take white pines out of nature, and there's a whole cascade of things that happen because synergistically over the years, things have evolved together to work together as a whole. Could you talk to our listeners here for Spirit in Action about some of the experience you've had with using herbalism in healing? Well, I'll talk about a specific physical ailment, and then I'll talk kind of more the spiritual, mental part of it. So I really knew that plants were healing in of themselves, just being around them. And I even questioned my own interest in herbalism, like, do these things really work? And one time I had a red rash on my skin. The doctors had said it's some kind of dandruff that people get on the skin in the summer when you're hot and sweaty. And, you know, here's a cream that you can have. Well, I made one for myself out of herbs. And I, that thing cleared up in like a week. It was just really fast and effective. And then another time I had a joint issue going on in my thumb. It was really sore. I had jammed it. I was just thought, I was just going to live with this for the rest of my life. Probably a little arthritis in there. Put a little Solomon seal oil that I had made for myself on it. And i not even kidding you. Within the hour, it was gone. And that never came back. So those are some great, quick remedies that worked really fast. Now, herbs sometimes take several weeks to months to actually get going in the body to work. I will say there's been times in my childhood where I felt very stressed and wasn't responding well to things that were going on in my family situation, and the plants were the ones there that seemed to soothe me the most. That experience of being in the in the woods and in the fields when I felt stressed and unhappy and lonely, and how much better I felt when I came out of that situation, I took note of that, and it stuck with me all my life. You know, some people feel really good around water, But for me, it was always the plants. I always felt much better with the plants. That's where it really started for me was just that awareness like, oh, I feel really good about around plants. So, You share some elements of this, Erin, in your book, Learning Herbalism Workbook. Increase your knowledge, confidence, and use of plants using worksheets that emphasize herbalism fundamentals, study strategies, and goal-setting techniques. And folks, you can find a link to Erin Lefebvre Her private business is fullcircleherbals.com, and she can help provide consulting and teaching. She does both of those, and we'll learn more about that in just a moment. But I want to toss in one of my experiences, Erin. When my son was about a year old, he had ear infections, and we went to his regular doctor and got this antibiotic, and you Three weeks later, you go back, and it's still there. And three, give this one, and you go back, and it's there. And then he says, well, if this next one doesn't work, then we have to start talking about tubes. This was back in the 1980s, about 1990. And in between, before we went to see him again, we went to see a homeopathist who was also an MD. 
He had both certifications. He said, well, that ear infections, there's some real basic. It's either this or this in homeopathy. He spent 25 minutes with us. He gave us something that cost $3, and within three days, the ear infection was gone. It made a believer of me. We went back and saw the regular doctor. He says, oh, look at it. It worked. I said, yeah, it worked, but you don't know what worked because the ear infection had been there three days before. So... I'm aware that even though there's been total miracles of modern medical science that I would not do without, the philosophy that says what we do is we extract one ingredient and that's what we use as opposed to in herbals, as you say, there, there's a whole bunch of things that are interacting in any single plant and there's also multiple plants involved. So pharmaceuticals have their value, but why is that not the answer? And I think it has to do with this reductionist thinking, but I want to know what your answer is because you're providing a full spectrum picture of how you deal with these things. So I agree, you know, pharmaceuticals have their place. There's also things that people can be doing for themselves. For example, if they get an earache, that could be used first to see if they can do something for themselves before they have to get to a level where they need to go to a medical doctor and start doing antibiotics. And even medical doctors are kind of pulling back on antibiotics because of the resistance. So there's some of that kind of empowerment that people can have on their own to be in control of their health a little bit more. And it's really, you know, the word control. It's not about taking control away from medical doctors. And it's just about being more proactive for yourself to have a few more tools in your medicine cabinet or in your kitchen cupboards that you can go to when you're not feeling well right away. Something, you know, we already have aspirin and Tylenols and cold medicines, you know, people go and do this stuff on their own already. So there are a few more things that are easily accessible in our area, you know, just plants and stuff that are growing around here. Things that people can do very, like you said, very inexpensive to help do that so that we can be a little bit more empowered with our own health and know what to do just right on the land first and foremost. So give me an example of some of those plants that are right on our land. I mean, you're looking right there, you see some rosemary sitting there and there's a bay leaf plant, which, you know, we have year round and downstairs I have green peppers. We bring them in in the fall before the freeze and we grow green peppers just sitting in our downstairs here right by a window all through the winter. So it's not what you people usually expect in Wisconsin. What plants are particularly good starter plants, I guess you'd say? Because that involves easy identification and some usefulness and some friendliness. They have to be generally available. What are some good starter plants that give you the idea of the bounty of herbalism? One of my favorite herbs to teach people about is stinging nettle. It's easy to find around here. You don't really have to, you don't have to get seeds or plants and put it in your garden, right? You just have to know where it is and it's it grows well everywhere here in Wisconsin and all over the world actually. It's very nutritious, so it's again like that preventative part of let's make sure our bodies are getting all their micronutrients and the vitamins and, and minerals and all that kind of thing. And it's also a great antihistamine for spring hay fever that people get and other allergies. So what a great way to give yourself nutrients and the benefits if you're having sneezes and sniffles from all the pollen that's out there. And it's easy to chop and hang up and dry and you can make your own, you know, you can dry it and have your own tea right there or you can boil it or cook it and eat it because once you dry it or boil it and cook it, the sting is gone. Very easy to identify. 
And then the other one that's very easy to grow is mint. Aspirament especially is my favorite. Grows well in a pot, so anybody in an uh, apartment could have it too. And so at any time that you have indigestion or a sign of a tummy ache, even for children, great go-to to have right away just a little little half cup of tea can really do a lot. And it's got all those antimicrobials in it as well. So you're kind of just covering your bases because you might not know what you have, but herbs can kind of cover the bases because the good thing about herbs is there's they have multiple uses. Like I said, nettle's good antihistamine. It's uh, nutritive and it helps kind of a blood tonic too to help with those sorts of things because that's protein in it. It's like as good as spinach and it has antihistamine qualities. So that's what's cool about plants is you can take it and it kind of covers all sorts of things that might be happening in your system. I'm just curious as to what is the mix in your family of, let's say, traditional medicine versus herbalism. And there's other modes. Okay, It's not that those are the only two choices. What kind of mix do you find as especially helpful in your family? Well, with me around... (laughs) I'm the one who's always saying there's a there's a plant for that there's an herb for that, so in our my family the family that I grew up in and then my husband's family it's it's a good dose of pharmaceutical you know traditional medicine, and then there's me coming in and teaching people what to do if they want to of course I don't push it on people, so I I think I'm pretty balanced too with pharmaceuticals versus herbs, and I'm always trying to find more ways to bring the herbs in too. I just remembered one story that I forgot to mention that was with my grandmother on my mother's side. I remember I had an earache as a child. It's a very vague memory, but they put onion juice in my ear. They, I really remember them putting this onion juice in my ear, and I remember it working as well. So there was a little bit of that in the family, but mostly get your good vegetables from your own garden and go to the doctor was <laughs> what we were doing. Again, we want to talk about the book by Erin Lefebvre, Learning Herbalism Workbook. About half the book is worksheets of sorts that you're teaching people how to use so that they can encourage their own self-learning. But the other part uh, besides this book is consultation they can do with you or with other herbalists. Fullcircleherbals.com is Erin Lefebvre's website, and you can find the link on nordenspiritradio.org. If people come to you, describe for our listeners what the options are. Are you going to just answer one question? Is it you're going to be training them or what kind of courses? I personally think, because I I learn interactively very well, better than from a book, for me, learning from an individual. So when I started learning about plants, Sam Thayer was here and he started showing me and here's your hazelnut and here's where the ground nut's growing and here's how you process acorns, all those things that I've learned in the years. By spending a few minutes with him, I learned much more than I would have from a book, although his books are really excellent. We'll be talking to him in just a moment. But in terms of the resources that you offer, Aaron, what can people get from Full Circle Herbals? Well, I have the consultations and I have the workbook and I have some e-courses and I have a membership site and then I also do in-person teaching as well. So let me just start with the consultations really quick. I usually do it in packages, so four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. And I do that because when I get information from you about what ailment or goal you want to work on for your health, 
then it doesn't do any good if I just hand over some papers and say, here's some of the plants and herbs and products that may assist with you. Because there's a lot of back and forth, like, where do you think I should get this product? How much should I take? And so I just have this kind of open dialogue with people for, you know, up to four to eight weeks. And I do face-to-face through Zoom, so kind of like Skype. So I can see people when, especially if they don't live in the area, I meet up with people face-to-face if they're in the area. And um, I just give them support that way. So it's more of an educational process because I can't prescribe, treat, diagnose, or cure anyway. That's That would be illegal of me. So I'm more of like an educator with people or a consultant, an herbal life coach, if you will, to help guide people through that. And then I've done a lot of online training in the last year, year and a half, because people are doing what I'm doing, the self-study part of it, and they need something that's reasonably priced. And I kind of give them the tools to be able to do the self-study and take it where they want to take it and kind of guide people about, you know, if you're interested in this kind of part of herbalism, then this is where you'll go. These are the sources and the other books that you can do. And then I do live webinar stuff in Facebook groups, too, that I have. So I'm getting face-to-face with people, and I can't wait until it's like Right now, there's not much growing out here, so I can't wait till I have actually real things to show people on um, webinars and stuff. So I'm always trying to get hands-on stuff so that people can see it as well through the videos that I do. I'm still thinking that getting out a book and starting a new business and homeschooling and shifting finances and all that has got to be pretty stressful. And I'm wondering what herbals you take for yourself to deal with your own stress. Nettle. <laughs> Definitely nettle, just make sure I'm getting all those bases. I like something from Herb Farm that's called Lemon Balm Calm. It's a tincture. It's made with glycerin, so it's really sweet. And then any teas that have milky oats, chamomile, lavender, California poppy, vervain, and I do have another tincture that has hops and valerian in it. Those are a little bit more hard hitters. But yeah, I drink some sort of herbal tea quite often. And I also want to make sure that I have elderberry syrup that I use instead of honey in my tea. I use elderberry syrup just to make sure I'm getting the... I don't want to get sick. I haven't had a cold or a flu this year at all, even though my whole family in the house has had it. And they're not always so... They don't really like the elderberry syrup taste. I like elderberry a lot, so I'll take it quite often. With all the resources that you offer via fullcircleherbals.com, the interactive teaching, consulting, etc., does the workbook that you've produced, Learning Herbalism Workbook, does that operate in conjunction with your teaching? Someone signs up for your course, do they also maybe get the book and so that they can start learning on dealing with their own health? I do think that one of the big mistakes that we've made in this world has been to hand away the power of our healing to professionals, as if the professional knew what happened. And the worst case I saw of that actually is with respect to childbirth, where doctors say, okay, this is an operation thing. We keep family and everybody out, and we put you in stirrups, and we operate on you that way. I have a feeling that that produced a whole lot of negative results, and is one of the reasons that we have the high number of C-sections that we have. It's, it's incredible in this country what we have versus other nations. So I think it's so important to reclaim our power and being responsible for our own health, because we all know that by overeating, we don't do ourselves any favors, or by smoking, but there's so many other environmental things that we do that make a difference. What else would you suggest that people look at in their lives in terms of the environmental effects that are keeping them from full health? I'm really big into probiotics right now. 
I mean, I think it's the new like germ theory. So we had germ theory kind of come through our medical system that really helped us. And I think probiotics and understanding the gut system is going to really break open a lot of cures and therapies for people once we can figure out what every single ailment has in terms of how it responds to a certain strain of a probiotic. And with herbs, there's prebiotics. So all those probiotics are actually feeding on something else. Inulin is in a lot of herbs, especially in dandelion root and things like that. And inulin is needed to feed those probiotics. So I think, I can't really prove this, but I really think the herbs that we used to drink in teas and forage on the land, even though we may not have eaten a lot of them in our diet, and Sam Thayer will say, you, you know, some of these things you couldn't really live off of. There's not a lot of caloric intake on them. But I think a lot of them are key components to our health into our gut, into all the overall balance in our bodies. So that's why I'm such a proponent of getting herbs, even in culinary spices, in, into our diet a lot more, because I, I really think there's something about them that our bodies are missing. Of course, just getting outside and into nature, and that there's a different energy in nature than what we are getting when we're inside a house inside a building with no windows. We are just wired to be in nature and people need to do that every day if possible. Does it make a difference to have plants in your house? Does that actually change it? I'm thinking of listeners. There was one place I visited in San Francisco. At one point I walked through the city and I walked over a mile without seeing any spot of earth at all. It was all paved, all houses, all solid from the road, at least where I was walking past people's homes and businesses and everything. And we've got listeners all across the United States for Spirit in Action. What can they do if they are in the city and they don't have access to nature like we do right outside my window? I can't imagine living like that. (laughs) But bringing plants indoors is definitely a help because you... I've noticed that in times of stress, like at a a meeting or something for the extension office, even just having a plant in the room, which is kind of a stress reliever, just, you know, reminding me like there's bigger things at play here and not just what's on our agenda. (laughs) These, These things stressing me out on my agenda is not everything. There's a whole natural world out there of that's been around a lot longer than I have. So definitely indoor plants and people are starting to learn how to use lighting to grow herbs inside and like you have experience with your peppers and to have some of that sustenance inside as well. And there's always container gardening for people who have patios, if they have access to patios to be used. There's always a park somewhere around that you can get to, but I would say plants inside are definitely a big help. I'd like to talk more, but we got to get over to Sam in just a moment. So Learning Herbalism Workbook by Erin Lefebvre is something you want to pick up and start learning. Erin is available for your consultation. Her website is fullcircleherbals.com. You can get her book through that and Amazon or where else that you'd expect to be able to get it. Erin Lefebvre has her BS Geography, Master's Environmental Science, and her Master Herbalist degree as well. So she brings a thorough knowledge of science along with a holistic healing that you can get through herbalism that our reductionist science doesn't usually make available to you. She's an excellent resource, an excellent person, and I think you'll just enjoy spending time with her in any case. So remember to look for Learning Herbalism Workbook by Erin Lefevin. Erin, thank you so much for joining me again for Spirit in Action. I wish you really well on the work of Full Circle Herbals. 
Thank you so much for having me. And before we go on to our second guest, I'll remind you that this is Spirit in Action, and northernspiritradio.org is our website, full of links to guests, further information on them, and there are a lot of them over the past 12 and three quarters years. There's info on the stations that carry our programs, and don't forget to post a comment when you visit, else how will we know you're there? The donate button is important because we depend on you to support this full-time work, not corporations or government, you. But before you support us, remember to empower your local community radio station with contributions from your hands and wallet. Such great news and music that you're not going to get anywhere else. Support community radio now. And let's head back to our second Spirit in Action guest on today's topic, Nurtured by Nature. We've had Samuel Thayer on a couple times before, and as one of our nation's leading foraging experts and an amazing author as well, I can't imagine having him here too often. He's also a blessing of a soul, so Sam Thayer joins us to talk about his third book in a series on foraging, and we'll sit down in person with him as well. Sam, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Pleasure to be here, Mark. This new book that you've just put out, Incredible Wild Edibles, is incredible, surprisingly enough. You included it in the title. I love so much your writing in here. It captures so much of you and the very comfortable way that you are with the world, with plants, with nature, as we call it. And so many people get distanced from it. And your essays point this out so well. I want to talk a little bit about the essays, and I'm going to talk about just some of the chapters in there that deal with specific plants that we could be eating, and that they're all around us, depending where we live. I guess they're not everywhere in the United States, but your maps show where they grow. The thing I wanted to start with was some of the fears and questions that people have. In this book, you have an essay where you, for instance, talk about people's fears of being poisoned by foods. You know, they're, you know, they're going to pick something that they think is healthy, tasty, desirable, and they're going to die from it, right? And that does happen occasionally. Why do we not have to worry that's going to happen all the time? What are the guidelines to keep us safe when we're foraging? Okay, so before I give you guidelines about staying safe, I'm going to back up a little bit here and give you a perspective on the way people think about plants because we have been gatherers of plants for food as long as we've been human. So we have an instinct that tells us don't eat that thing if you don't know what it is. And that's a really useful instinct. And we don't have an instinct, for example, telling us that bicycles are exceedingly dangerous, right? Because we don't have a long history of association with bicycles. Otherwise, we would see them as terrifying. Now, with someone that collects wild plants, this instinct expresses itself in a really, really functional way. You look at a plant, and if you don't know what it is, the instinct says, this is not an option as food. And if you know exactly what it is, the instinct tells you, this is an option as food. Let's analyze the plant and see if I want to collect it right now. But for people who do not forage for wild food and only imagine what it might be like. We have this instinct regarding plants and identifying plants, and it's like trying to get to the surface. And it comes to the surface in really dysfunctional ways, like telling us simply to be terrified of all green things in nature. That's where this whole fear comes from. The fear is really a manifestation of an instinct that's kind of oozing out of the cracks in our psyche. Actual instances of poisonings 
from misidentifying plants are so rare that it is almost unfathomable. It tells me there has to be an instinct guiding this behavior because it is so incredibly rare. Now, fatal poisonings happen in North America at the rate of maybe two or three per decade where adults have a fatal poisoning from eating wild plants. That's unbelievably low. If you look at the case histories, they are almost always of people eating random plants, making zero attempt to identify them. So cases of actual misidentification are almost unheard of. This brings us to the rule. Don't eat a plant if you don't know what it is. And how do you know you know what it is? You will know in your chest with that feeling of absolute comfort, the same feeling you have if you're going to eat an apple or a banana. You don't stop and say, hmm, what if this isn't a banana? What if it's a deadly false banana? Now that sounds rather ridiculous because you know what a banana is, undoubtedly. If you recognize any plant with that level of comfortability, you're ready to eat it. And that's what I call the banana test. And I don't mean to tell you that you're going to like every single food, but there's plenty of domestic and cultivated foods that people don't like either. One of the incredible wild foods that you talk about in your initial essays, you talk a bit about, uh, what did you call it, the green revolution or the green meal. That's what it was. You talked about your own adaptation, learning to better enjoy and delve into the, the riches of green meals. Explain what a green meal is and what you learned in the process that you wrote about for this book. You know, I grew up in the 80s and fat was bad. Fat was evil. Fat was going to destroy your health and give you a heart attack. So I grew up thinking that fat was to be avoided at all costs. But I've realized that traditional cultures all over the world eat greens with fat. Because greens and fat together provide a fairly complete meal. You have oil and you have protein. And if you add a simple whole starch to greens and fat you have a well-rounded meal. And greens are so unbelievably packed with nutrients. I mean, really, no other class of foods is more nutritionally dense than wild greens. And so using the greens fried in fat as a template for a meal or the basis of a meal, you almost automatically are going to have a healthy meal. And this is probably the easiest way that you can incorporate wild foods into your everyday diet. Because I don't care where you live, for half the year or more, you have an abundance of good wild greens easily available to you. You know, you're right, Sam, that growing up, I did hear, you know, fats are bad for you. That's what causes our problem. And people in southern areas in particular where they fry their vegetables, they, it's, it seems so foreign to me as a lifelong Wisconsinite to consider that. Isn't the fact that they fry a lot of foods a, a significant problem, obesity and, and otherwise, in the South? You know, any food tradition could be taken out of its context and overused, overdone. There's actually an interesting thought about why frying vegetables and greens is much more popular in the South than it is in the North. And it has to do with the historical prevalence of dairy and the ease of raising dairy cows and preserving milk products being higher in the north. And so the most important alternative source of calcium is green vegetables. Or you could see dairy is an alternative 
source of calcium to green vegetables. And this is why in Eastern Asia, vegetables are a far more prevalent part of people's diets than they are in Europe because of there being so little dairy. But when you take that tradition of frying green vegetables and then apply it to a whole bunch of vegetables that maybe don't need to be fried or you remove you you take part of that tradition and apply it to different foods then you can have an unhealthy result we have a lot of dietary instincts that used to make sense eat more calories eat more salt eat more fat look for calorie dense foods and greens used to be the cheapest food in the world they were the cheapest thing you could put in your mouth they aren't anymore and when they were really cheap people ate them in large quantities by default because we used to be poorer than we are now and now that we have the opportunity to eat whatever the heck we want to put in our bodies our instincts often tell us to eat too much of things that are not good for us at least in quantity, just like our instincts may tell us to sit around and relax and relax and relax and relax until we get no exercise and we have diabetes and we don't even have the ability to exercise anymore. So you take our some of our innate desires and remove them from the original context of our lifestyles and the result is something that's unhealthy. But it's not true that fats in and of themselves are unhealthy, you could use carbohydrates in an unhealthy fashion or fats in an unhealthy fashion or proteins for that matter. One of the people I enjoyed watching the exploits of was Charlie Underwood. He lives in Twin Cities and after learning from you and from other people as well, he decided to do an immense amount of foraging right in his neighborhood in the city. Most people think that that's not possible, but watching on Facebook I was seeing Charlie finding new foods. Here's the neighbor has this, and they, I just checked with them, and I can have this. And How reasonable is it for someone in a city to be able to forage significant greens, nuts, berries, etc., to get some really good food from right in their neighborhood? Cities are a fantastic place for foraging. I grew up most of my childhood living in the city, and you get the disturbance that creates lots of good greens. And as long as you can work around the herbicide and pesticides that people are spraying, if you can figure out the places that the food is safe, it's probably one of the better environments to forage. There's all kinds of landscaping plants that produce fruit that were planted for their beauty, not for their food. And so you can partake of that freely. I think it's one of the best foraging environments there is. A lot of times when I'm doing a plant walk or a talk, say, at a library, they'll act like, oh, it would be impossible to do a plant walk here because we're downtown. And usually we don't have to go more than a block from the library before we can find you know, 30 to 50 different edible plants to talk about. Of course, there are cities where that wouldn't be reasonable. At one point, I was in San Francisco for work, and I walked from the place where I was staying to the offices where I was working. In that mile, I don't think I saw even one square foot of ground with anything growing on it. It was all paved. It was all covered over. And that's a problem that some cities go that way. Most cities, most neighborhoods are not that way. Most people have at least small lawns, and so you get some of the stuff there. Let's talk about a couple of the plants that you have included in Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. And again, this is third in a series by Samuel Thayer. 
Spirit in action means that I'm going to live better on the earth. I'm going to do things that heal this world. And so how can harvesting something like bladder campion, how can that improve the world? Whenever you gather a plant, you're connecting yourself to this landscape. There's nothing bad that can come. Only good comes from reminding yourself of the endless daily miracle of life. Sunshine hits the earth, rain falls upon the earth, and from the combination of those two things and soil, these plants bring forth life and offer it to you. And bladder campion is a weed, generally a despised weed, that grows in poor soil over most of North America that doesn't occur to most people that it could possibly be food. But when it's young in the spring, the shoots are fantastic green it just it makes the world a brighter, better place. And, of course, there's all kinds of different types of wild foods. There's, there's root vegetables. There's fruits, berries. You know, there's greens. There's seasonings. There's teas. I mean, every class of produce is somewhere also in the wild. And, you know, not that there's only greens. And my book doesn't focus only on greens, but it has a number of them because it really is the easiest way to incorporate wild food into the average person's diet. One of the interesting chapters I read was the one that you have in Incredible Wild Edibles on caraway. Caraway, I've only known previously as, you know, you put caraway seeds on something. That's that's the only way I've ever heard of it being used. And so reading the chapter was eye-opening for me. I didn't realize there was a root vegetable that goes with it and that could be around here. I'm afraid that I thought caraway actually was something only grew over in India. Could you dispel the ignorance of many of our listeners who perhaps don't know about this already? Well, Mark, this is what I call the other half of the vegetable. What we often don't realize is that our food traditions have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because now that we generally don't raise our own food, we're limited to those products that can easily be commodified. So they need to be storable and transportable. So a lot of times the only part of a plant that we are accustomed to experiencing is that part that is most easily stored and sold. So for caraway, that's the seed. But caraway also has an edible root, And there are, in fact, varieties of caraway bred for their roots. They're somewhat like a parsnip, but really a distinctly different flavor. I think an excellent flavor. And caraway is also a shoot vegetable and a leafy green. Caraway greens are absolutely fantastic, and they do not taste like a green version of the seeds. There's just a hint of that flavor in the caraway greens. So here's a multifaceted vegetable and seasoning, and culturally, we've forgotten almost everything about it. And there are a whole bunch of vegetables or different cultivated plants for which we've essentially forgotten most of the uses. I think that the same applies to fennel, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, same thing applies to fennel. With fennel, you can eat the leaf bases. You can eat the young greens. You can eat the shoot of the flower stalk. You can eat the flower buds and the flowers. You can collect and eat the pollen. And you can eat the immature seeds as they're green and just forming. Or you can use the fennel seeds as you know them in Italian sausage, which are the final product that's easy to commodify and is commonly found in the store. Or you can buy those bulbs of the Florence fennel in the store, but that's one variety of fennel out of many. So there's so much more to that vegetable than what you can experience in the grocery store. And so here in Wisconsin, where you and I both happen to live, caraway and fennel, would we find them on the landscape somewhere? Fennel is 
pretty rare in Wisconsin. Caraway ranges from uncommon to very common, depending on what part of the state you're in. Caraway is throughout the state, but it's more common in northern Wisconsin. The best time to spot it in Wisconsin is late May to mid-June when it's in bloom. You know, if you learn to, to spot it, you'll realize it's, it's pretty common in ditches and hay fields and hillsides. Uh, there's a place where I go fishing near here where there's a whole bunch of it on a steep hillside along the lake. Folks, we're talking to Samuel Thayer about his newest book. It's, uh, I guess, third in a trilogy, Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life. You know, I met Sam some 20 years ago, and it has changed my life. One of the things that changes my life was that each fall, or as the acorn tree in our front, we have a burr oak in front of our house, it drops them on our driveway. There's piles of them. I have to remove them, so I decide to harvest them. So... Each fall, I've created a recipe, wild rice acorn burger recipe, and I've now trained a number of other people to make that. So I've got, I'm doing my own training of that because Sam trained me about acorns. I actually have never participated in maple syruping, Sam, although I have a neighbor just a quarter mile up the road who does maple syruping in his yard. He's got a number of trees, and he produces it. He evaporates it, and he invited me over to do that this year, so I think I'll actually be doing that very shortly. Maple syruping is certainly not considered a foreign food for us. It's one of those things that people can transition to pretty naturally. And I recall you telling me a number of years ago that for you, junk food is drinking some maple syrup. Talk a little bit about it. Well, it's just magical that you drill a hole in a tree and sugar water comes out. So I've been fascinated by that since I was a little kid. But it's also great because it's the time of year when everything seems dead and there's not much going on in the woods. But there is a lot going on that you can't see. By tapping the maple trees, you sort of get to plug yourself into the silent life of trees getting ready for spring. So it turns that slow season into the busiest time of year for a wild food gatherer who chooses to make maple syrup. You know, I remind myself that it is just sugar with a bunch of great nutrients in it, but I still don't want to consume too much of it because it is sugar. People are used to thinking of sugar maple trees and as if that was the one source of the sap that you can make maple syrup out of. When I was living in Milwaukee, there were silver maples, and I was told, yeah, you can use them too. It's not as dense of a sap. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I think even box elders are a variety of maple, aren't they? Yeah, um, you can use any maple, and sugar maple and black maple, which are almost indistinguishable, are definitely the best, but red maple is not far behind. People tend to exaggerate the difference in the sugar content of the sap of the various maples. So red maple and silver maple and box elder are just a little bit behind sugar maple in their sugar content. So for most people who just want to make it as a hobby, make a little bit for themselves, any of the maples are totally practical. Silver maple works great. Box elder works well. And even some of the smaller maples can be used if you find them bigger than about eight or nine inches that you can tap them. doesn't really matter what kind. And you referred, Sam, to the fact that there's some nutrients in with that sugar water, the sap that's coming out of the tree. How significant is the nutrition? Is it really better to eat maple syrup than to have cane sugar or to have honey? Or comparatively, if you're going to try and rot your teeth, which is better for rotting? Well, cane sugar that's made directly from cane juice without refining 
and molasses also are very nutritious, like maple syrup. So I think the important thing with sweeteners is just not to use too much. And what's interesting is that the native people made maple sugar, not really maple syrup. They made, boiled almost all of their maple down into maple sugar and granulated it. And when they did that, they were not filtering out what today we call the sugar sand, which is precipitated chunks of a lot of calcium and magnesium salts. And so that all was incorporated into the traditional native maple sugar. And that stuff was unbelievably loaded with mineral nutrients. So maple syrup is definitely better for you than white sugar, but I'm not going to pretend that it's great for you. But the traditional maple sugar that's not filtered is kind of like taking molasses as a vitamin supplement. It's so rich in in mineral nutrients. And folks, just keep in mind, uh, Sam referred to this earlier, there used to be things that were very scarce for us, and therefore our taste buds value them highly. But we're living in a glut of supply. So whether it's fats or carbohydrates or proteins or even greens, I mean, I guess you can overdose on greens too, although it's kind of hard considering the volume that probably involved. So maple syrup is in that category. It's a, it should be highly prized. It is nutritious. It is part of a good diet. One of the chapters you have is on mint. And I notice in our garden, there's one side of the garden that Sandra keeps where mint wants to take it over. And this maybe has to do also with what's indigenous, what's invasive, what grows in disturbed areas, and so on. Well, we have native and non-native mints in North America. So the genus mentha, which has a peppermint, spearmint, these familiar mints that come from Europe, has only one member in North America that's mentha arvensis, or sometimes called mentha canadensis. It's just called wild mint or field mint. That's a good mint. I like peppermint and spearmint better, actually, by flavor. But, you know, the non-native mints have generally not become seriously problematic invasives. They tend to stay in small areas or where they have spread into native plant communities. They don't dominate them the way that some non-native plants do. We also have a number of other closely related mints that aren't in the mentha genus that are native to North America. Uh, a lot of these can be used as a seasoning for tea or other ways that mint would be traditionally used. We have one called hairy wood mint, which I think is really fun because it'll grow tall. Sometimes it grows over my head, and to see a mint that tall is pretty awesome. That one tastes a lot like the field mint. And we have another one called calamint, which is a little tiny mint with little leaves, almost like thyme leaves, that creeps along the ground. And it mostly grows on limestone ledges. So there's a whole bunch of different mints that if you learn to identify them, you can use them all. They're not exactly the same as any mint that you would grow in your garden, but they're all comparable and you can use them in similar ways. One thing I noticed in some of these essays and in the chapters too, Sam, is it seems to me, I don't know if it's just because you're getting older because you know you're passing 40 now, and your language includes more, I guess, spirituality, prayer, sacredness than it used to. Is there something changing in your life that is adding some dimension related to those tendencies in the human heart? Well, I would hope that I'm changing and growing as I get older. But the changes that you're speaking of in my writing, I think, more reflect me being more comfortable with sharing that part of myself in what I write. It certainly has always been there, but, you know, 
writing is a personal experience. I mean, it's a it's a vulnerability. You're exposing your thoughts and your feelings to your reader, and it's a little bit scary. And it's taken me some time and some feedback to learn that not only is it okay to share that part of myself, but people want to hear that part of myself. Maybe not everybody, but certainly a number of readers, because I want to touch people in that spiritual place because I I do want to change people's lives. I want people to have these plants affect them the way they've affected me or other people who I've been able to witness that change in their lives. And so speaking to that aspect of my relationship to nature, I think gives people a little bit more comfortability with approaching it that way in their own lives. And I want to say about maple syrup, I often talk about food becoming cheaper and this changing our lives. Maple syrup is a perfect example of that. People think that maple syrup is expensive today. Well, in 1860, our maple syrup production in this country peaked In 1860, maple syrup cost more than double what it costs today, and yet people used it for most of their sweetener in much of the northern United States. If you go back another 100 years, maple sugar doubles again in price. So we're talking about just almost unfathomable prices for sugar, and yet in those days it was cheaper than white sugar. And so that gives some perspective on how expensive sugar used to be and how cheap it is now and why we glut ourselves with it today. Folks, we've been speaking with Samuel Thayer, his most recent book, Third in a Trilogy. This is called Incredible Wild Edibles. The previous two titles were The Forager's Harvest and Nature's Garden, all of them worth checking, and I've got interviews with Sam about them on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. His website, when you want to follow up stuff with Sam, is ForagersHarvest.com. The link's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Sam, it's been so wonderful to have you as my friend for these 20 years, and this book really represented for me a maturation of the gifts that you've always been giving but it really feels to me like if people sit down and get to know this book and get to experience what you talk about in this book, this world can't help but be a better place. Thank you so much again for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. The pleasure's been mine. Really, the pleasure has been ours. Both our visit with Samuel Thayer and Aaron Lefebvre have, I hope, given you some glimpses into the ways you can connect more deeply with the glorious riches of creation that surround us all. Allow ourselves to be nurtured by nature. Make every day Earth Day, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh